If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. For a couple months, we've been uh, working our way through Luke chapter 12. Uh, Luke chapter 12 is a sermon that uh, Jesus begins to give. Uh, It's an incredibly evangelical, evangelistic sermon uh, that he gives. Sometimes, uh, you know, we take a section at a time, we forget that Jesus said these things. And uh, these events took place at one point in time. And this sermon is given to a crowd that is uh, largely uh, religious. A crowd that assumes they're going to heaven. They assume they're right with God. Uh, Jewish uh, followers of, of the law of God. And yet Christ calls them hypocrites. Christ warns them that they're missing an opportunity because these religious people are rejecting Him. They're looking at Him and uh, considering Him to be led even by demons. And at the end of uh, chapter 12 is kind of the ending. Uh, It's bringing an end to this message. Uh, But on that occasion, this is brought up to Christ. If you look at chapter 13, uh, verse 1, here's what we read. There were some present, so present at the time of that sermon, at that very time, who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. I tell you, but unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Salome fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put put on manure. But if it should bear but if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Father, I pray that you give us insight through this sermon on this text. Lord, I pray this in Christ's 
name. Amen. Last Wednesday, January 8th, a Ukrainian international airplane crashed early Wednesday morning, killing all 176 people on board. I don't know if you saw that. I'm sure you heard about this in the news. I don't know what effect it had on you when uh, you heard that. I don't know if it affected you uh, as you thought about the children who lost parents, the mothers who lost sons and daughters, or if it was just another headline in the news. I'm sure if you've ever flown... As you've gotten onto the plane, you've wondered whether or not the plane will in fact make it safely to where it's intended to go. In fact, I was talking to someone uh, who was uh, talking about how, you know, we'll, we'll remind each other of truths from the Bible like every one of our days are written in a book before there is one of them. That's what the scripture tells us we all have our day, but it's like the guy who gets onto the plane and uh, is looking around wondering, I wonder if this is all their day. I wonder if this is the day that they're going to die. We think about these things when sudden disaster strikes. We can look at a thousand different scenarios like this we see in our world. In August 13, 1993, at 10 a.m. in the morning, the once splendid six-story Royal Plaza Hotel in Thailand came crashing down in less than 10 seconds. Tragically, 137 people were killed. In 10 seconds, in a hotel, 137 people dead. On June 29, 1995, in the space of 20 seconds, the Sampong department store in Seoul, South Korea, fell to the ground, killing 502 people, injuring 900 and 37. On October 30th, 2014, in Wichita, Kansas, three men entered a flight simulator to practice flying, and an airplane crashed through the building and killed them in the flight simulator. I was reading about a North Carolina man who went hunting. Larry Horton, 67 years old, uh, was hunting in the woods. He fell asleep about 1.30 p.m. The deer don't move then. That's the time to get a nap. 
but a dead tree tipped over and fell across his chest and killed him. I read about an Irish nurse, 26 years old, who was killed when a tree fell on the Uber car she was riding in. We live in a day and age where we could read thousands of stories about tragic calamity that strikes in a moment. And this is unique throughout history that we know about them all. You go back just a couple hundred years and you would hardly hear about any of these things. And yet we see them over and over and over again so that when you hear 176 people being killed in a plane crash, you say, huh. You maybe were a little more interested because it was close to a time when the United States were, uh, embassy was attacked. It might be a little bit more interesting, but we become numb to these cataclysmic events. Do they really affect us the way they ought to affect us? On September 11th, 2,996 people died in one day with those terror attacks. Almost 3,000 Americans. And it affected us because it was bigger than the other ones that have hit before. And people began talking about spiritual things. People began talking about why did this happen? Is this judgment on America from God? Is it this? Is it that? And people started asking the big questions of life. The question that was on the people's hearts that came to Christ. Jesus knows the hearts of man. We know that from John 2. He doesn't need them to speak. He already knows what they were thinking. But when they point out this terror attack that happened in the temple in Jerusalem when Jews were going to worship and they were slaughtered there and mocked by dripping their blood on the altar in Jerusalem. When that is told to Jesus, Jesus knows how they are viewing these events. They're viewing these events the same way people were viewing events way back in Job's days. Horrible, cataclysmic things must happen to bad people and the survivors must be the good ones. It's simple, right? If lightning strikes you, you must have done something wrong. If a tree falls on you when you're sleeping and you're out hunting, certainly there must have been some terrible hidden sin. That's the way, the simple way, 
those in Jesus' day looked at events like this. And yet, trouble has been happening ever since Adam and Eve sinned. So the question is, what do we make of these tragic, cataclysmic events? When we think about them, we could be nuanced in so many different ways. We actually ought to be scripturally. Because we're told God kills some people directly because of their sin sometimes. Right? We read this in Acts uh, 12, 21 about Herod. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them. He, he's a great orator. And the people were shouting, a voice of a God and not a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last breath. Great speech, everyone said, a voice of a God. And Herod said, that's right. Boom, dead, right there. Paul tells us that some were taking uh, the Lord's Supper with the wrong heart and had fallen sick, and that some have died. So yes, the Bible gives us examples of how sin can, God could take us at any moment, and does sometimes because of terrible sins. And yes, they're sinful are, are there's consequences for sin, sinful behaviors. If you drink too much, your liver might be destroyed and you may die. There's consequences like that in the world. Immorality often leads to sexually transmitted diseases. Criminal behavior can lead to violent death. All those things are true, but that's not the topic that Jesus is talking about at this time. He's talking about a cataclysmic, what seems like a random event. Are we to think that they are worse sinners than the rest of society? Look at... uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 56. This is our text from last week. I want you to see how close, in a sense, it might feel like you're hearing the same sermon two weeks in a row because it's a similar main point. Jesus uh, was pointing out the hypocrisy of the people that were listening to the sermon, he says, you see a storm cloud come up and you say it's going to rain. And then you feel a south wind, you say it's going to be a warm day. He says, you know how to interpret those things. You claim to be spiritual teachers, but you don't know how to interpret the present time. The Messiah is in front of them and they don't realize he's the Messiah. And they don't know what time it is. And then he says, why do, you not ju- why do you not judge for yourselves what is right as you go with your accuser before the magistrate? 
Make every effort to settle, settle with him on the way, lest he drag you before the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison, for I tell you, you'll never get out until you paid the very last penny. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you don't settle with the judge, God, before you die, you will pay every last penny for the debt that you owe. And one of the things our text is going to reveal to us today, and the scripture reveals to us, is that sin creates the penalty of death, and ultimately death in hell. And Jesus is loving the people by saying, settle before you get to that day. You have a limited amount of time and you need to settle with your accuser before that day. And the only person you can settle with is Christ and the crowds have been rejecting Him, saying He's from the devil. And so that leads us into this text that says in Luke 13.1, and this is your first point in your sermon, wake up and agree with Jesus about your sinfulness. There were some present at the very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate's had mingled with their sacrifices. So let's get this straight. Galilean Jews, the only place Jews would make sacrifices were in the temple. So this event took place in the temple. And Galilean Jews were there, probably on Passover, because that's when the common folk were actually there for the sacrifices. Pilate had slaughtered some of them and mingled their blood with their sacrifices. So as they would sacrifice a lamb and put it on the altar, as the law of God required, Pilate comes in, murders some of these Galileans, and sprinkles the blood on the altar. This would be on the front page of the, of the newspaper in those days. This is news that's spreading. And they come and they tell Jesus this. And Jesus, reading their hearts, says, Do you think that they were worse sinners than you? He says, he says Do you think though that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans? Because they suffered in this way? No. It's emphatic. It's it's. It's the Greek word no is at the front of the sentence. It's like underlining it, highlighting it. No, that's not true. I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. So the comfort of those who weren't killed may be saying, well, I'm glad God didn't judge me that way. Maybe we were better than them. He says, don't. Tell yourself that narrative because 
It is not true. The common belief in Israel was this simple formula. If you're prospering, God is happy with you. If you're suffering, if you don't have as much money, God is not nearly as pleased with you. In fact, we will see this later in Luke 18. We see the same sort of thinking when Jesus is talking to the rich young ruler. Uh, when he gets done talking to him, the rich young ruler leaves because Jesus says, if you really want treasure in heaven, give all that uh, you have away. Jesus, uh, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for the camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, who then can be saved? Because they're looking at the rich man going, if he's not getting in, nobody's getting in because rich people are blessed by God. They're better. This, this was their mindset. Uh, we also learned this in John 9 verse 1, as we read, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's saying you can't look at a blind man and assume that he was a worse sinner or that his parents were worse sinners. And yet this is how the thinking was going. The first thing we need to realize is that God never, ever, ever does wrong. He has total right to take any sinner's life at any point in time he pleases. It's a just act for God to take any sinner at any point in time. For Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. God has never done wrong taking anybody's life at any point and time, whether they're young or whether they're old, if they're a sinner, and the Bible tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which means all of us have done what Herod did when he was struck dead in a moment, taking glory for yourself from God. In fact, Jesus puts all other people in the exact same category of those who were killed in a moment uh, that were killed by Herod. They're sinners who need to repent and settle with the judge uh, before they die. Uh, the Bible is crystal clear that all people are in the same category of of, and that of sinners. Psalm 14.1 says, 
The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Bible says there's no one who is inherently good. Psalm 143.2 says, Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. You know, we look at people and we say that's a good person or that's a bad person, and we're comparing people to each other. But when you compare people to God, there is no good people. Proverbs 20 verse 9 says, Who can say, I've made my heart pure, I am clean from my sin? The answer is nobody. We must agree with God about our sin. The first step to waking up and getting help is to agree with God about your sin. Romans 3.9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? Jews might think they're better than Gentiles. No, not at all. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greek, are under sin. And as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And then he ends that passage by saying, There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is you and this is me. How many times have you sinned last week without trembling and weeping over the horrible rebellion that sin is? We don't see God. And therefore, we don't tremble before His majesty and His holiness. We tell ourselves a lie about ourselves, and we often do not agree with God about our true condition. In fact, our favorite game is to get together and have coffee and talk about the good ones and the bad ones, and we're all glad that we're the good ones. That's what we do for entertainment. We get groups, we separate them out, we figure out where the good ones are and where the bad ones are, and then we just glory in the fact that we're on the right side of it. And yet Jesus says, you want to know what a cataclysmic event is like? It's like an alarm clock that rings out into the world and says, repent now, because that could have been you. And if it was, it would have been just, which means we're living on borrowed time. God owes no sinner one more second of life. In fact, every second you've been given up to this point is by the grace of God. What do these mean when these happen? He doesn't answer all the why questions, why them and not them, but he does tell you what to do with it. It's a wake-up call that that could be us today. 
You could walk out of here. There's big cottonwood trees. One of those limbs could fall off. And you could be gone. And you could regret for all eternity not valuing time. Missing alarm clocks going off like crazy over and over and over again. So, wake up and agree with God about your sin. You're not pretty good. You're not better than most. You're in the category of everyone else, rebels of God, who deserve the eternal wrath of God. And that's not God doing something wrong. That's God doing something right. Just. In fact, what should the question be? God is so merciful to us and so gracious to us and gives us so much more time than we deserve that when calamity strikes, we ask the totally wrong question. We should be saying, how can you keep giving us mercy and grace and time? How come this doesn't happen all the time? Way more often. And so Jesus tries to wake them up. And then he gives another example. He says in verse 4, and and we'll look at point 2 now, repent while you have time. Jesus gives another example because we were talking about Galileans. And evidently the Jews were probably thinking, oh yeah, it was Galileans. You know, it was the Democrats who died when they were doing their sacrifices. It wasn't the, that's what it would have been like. Galilean Christians were looked down upon by the, or I should say Jews, were looked down by the Judean uh, Jews. We know this, John seven fifty two. they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet comes from Galilee. They disdained Galileans. So Jesus brings up another event. And he says, are, are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they're worse offenders than the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You see what he's doing? He's taking another cataclysmic event. The pool of Siloam was this pool where the blind man, Jesus told him to go wash and he'd be able to see. Uh, It's in the southeast corner of Jerusalem where the Gihon River flows in and fills up that pool. And the Romans built a big aqueduct there and evidently they might have built either a watchtower or maybe it was scaffolding for the aqueduct. We don't know the details, but some... Innocent bystanders, or according to their culture, they must have been bad sinners, were walking by. The tower fell on them and killed them. Um, it was interesting. Just in 2004, they, they were doing repairs on some uh, underground pipes and they discovered the pool. And, and so you can go read about the pool of Siloam and they excavated the stairs going down to the pool. It's incredible that they're still finding these places that the Scripture tells us about. But Jesus' command, 
at this cataclysmic event is repent. Repent. God's patience with people is meant to lead them to repentance. And Jesus is preaching the most loving sermon ever as he says, quit telling yourself a false narrative about who you are. Admit it. Agree with God that you're sinful and you can't save yourself and turn from trying to find life in your sin and turn to me, turn to Christ. Here's how Paul put it in Romans 2. He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Paul's writing to people who are looking at the uh, Gentile sinners, and they think they're so much better. And he says, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things that yet do them yourselves, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Then he says, Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's saying, here's the problem. You've been sinning and being hypocrites and lightning bolts haven't been hitting you. And you've been presuming upon the kindness of God, not knowing that that kindness was time, opportunity to repent. And then the next verse is so sad. He says, but because of your hard and penitent hearts, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says, the sad thing is, is with this time when you're telling yourself, God's good with me. I'm comparing myself to other people worse than me, making myself feel better. During that time, as you're telling yourself the false narrative, what you don't know, this is a picturesque verse. You, because of your heart and penitent heart, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And Jesus is saying it could come in a moment. A tower could fall on you. In Rapid City, uh, they used to have the water slides that would go down the hill uh, just outside a. Uh, uh, rapid city there and as when we'd go out to camp we would always go there and they had these water slides where you would sit down in the water slide and this clear tube would fill up with water behind you and it would get up about 10 feet tall and they'd push a button and all that water would come down and shoot you down the slide whenever I read this verse this is what I think of people who are self-righteous and thinking they're better than others because they're pointing to these rules they're making. They're not seeing how they're breaking all those same rules. He said, it's like every sin, it's storing up. They keep thinking, I get away with it. God must be okay with me. But it gets higher and higher. And one day, the button's going to be pushed and God's wrath will come crashing down on them 
in that day. And in this sermon, Jesus is saying, settle. Settle with your accuser before you get with the judge. And the person you settle with is Jesus. That's the only hope anyone has. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God uses these calamities to remind us that we don't know if we have another minute. He says, repent. Repentance has two basic elements to it. The first element is sinners must agree with God about their sin. Before a person repents, they love sin. They plan sin. They organize sin. They seek for sin. They love it. But repentance sees sin as that which leads to death, that which dishonors God, and it agrees with God the horridness of the sin and that there's no life in it. That's the first element. The second element is turning from sin to Christ, to the one who came to swallow up the wrath of God in your place. He came to be the substitute, the go-between, the propitiation, the one who would make the payment. What we deserve for our sin was building up on our heads, but the Bible says when we trust in Christ by faith alone, when we trust in Christ, all that is swallowed up by Him on the cross. That's why Jesus says, on the cross, it is finished. So wake up and repent while there's still time. By the way, Luke 15.7 says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous person who needs no repentance. Meaning, 99 people who are moralistic and trying to be the good thing, 99 of them thinking they're good, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner admitting who he is and looking for a Savior than all the others. This is what the gospel calls for. It calls for repentance. In Mark 1.14 it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, saying, Time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the call. A child can understand it. You're a sinner. You can't dig yourself out of the hole. You deserve the just wrath of God and your only hope is Jesus who came to pay the price for your sin. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. Look at point three in your notes. Wake up, for now is the time for spiritual fruit. 
Look at the parable Jesus tells. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree uh, planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on the fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should I... Why should he use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Fig trees were common in Israel. They're mentioned over 50 times in the scriptures. It's a common tree that grew wild. And so to plant a fig tree in a vineyard is to like guarantee almost the success of the fig tree. In fact, you have a full-time worker whose job is to keep the fig tree alive. I think this parable has a, a both a national and a personal application. Here's what it is. Israel has been given the Word of God. Israel has been given a savior for three years now. That teacher has been with them teaching the word of God. They've had every privilege as, as Jews in those times. And yet there's still no fruit. And the vine dresser says, wait, let's wait a little longer. Let me dig around it. Let me put manure on it. Let's see if the fertilizer can help it. And if it doesn't grow in a year, cut it down. And Jesus is telling the crowds, how, how far is a year away? Not very long. He's saying you've heard the truth for three years now. There's still no fruit. You're not repenting. You're not trusting me. Be careful. Because a year is going to go by fast and that will be cut down. You remember how John the Baptist started his ministry? What his sermon was, Matthew 3? But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to him to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying, since when did you admit your sinners? Who warned you to, to flee the wrath to come? You don't think wrath's coming on you. Come on, man. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance if you're coming for the baptism. And then here's what he says. He says, and, and do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's saying already the axe has hit the root of the tree. And unless there's true signs of repentance, true fruit, you will be cut down. Now listen. The fruits of the Spirit are the fruits of the Spirit. They're not the fruits of human power. You can't save yourselves by doing good things and making yourself better. 
What you need is you need a spiritual birth. Garrett's going to be preaching about this next week. You need a spiritual birth. But these crowds think that they're spiritual. They think that they're saved. And yet the fruit is evidence that they have not trusted Christ by faith. He's showing them that they need to turn. They need to repent. They need to trust Him. The personal application is pretty easy to see. Those who are not producing the fruits of the Spirit will be cut down soon. A tree could fall on you. A car could go out of control and smash into you. Any moment, we could face the judge. And the question is, is will we be ready? Will we be ready? Does our life prove that our hope is in God? Is there fruit of salvation? Let me close by sharing a quote to you from uh, Jim Elliott, the missionary in Ecuador. He says, uh, when it comes time to die, make sure that's all you have to do is die. When it comes time to die, make sure that the only thing you have to do at that moment is die. Don't be one that needs to scramble, that needs to quickly try to get your life right with Christ. Because God has given you an incredible privilege. He's given you time. You're here today. You're alive. You can give your life to Christ. You can trust Him. You can let go of man-made works righteousness and cling to Christ alone. But there's no guarantee that you have tomorrow. And the second part of this is this. Every Christian in this room's life is so valuable because you've been given the gospel. This world that is dark and is dying needs believers to show up with the gospel, with the same sort of message saying, settle with the judge before you meet him in Christ. God loves you. And I'm telling you, we're being fooled when we waste time. Because that's one thing you have a limited amount of. We're soldiers for Christ who are on iPads, on iPhones, watching movies, doing all the while we look at the news and say, it's so sad, it's such a lost world. And we forget that we're His witnesses and that our time is limited. And so my prayer is, that the Lord would wake you up with this message that when you would see these news headlines, it would click in your mind and say, oh yeah, what time is it? Now is the time of sanctification to grow in my walk with God and to share the gospel with other people. Father, thank you for this incredible teaching that Christ gives us. 
Lord, 2,000 years later, we can be impacted by it. Lord, I pray that you would use this in our lives, that you would use this not for our own glory, but for your glory. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just weep for the world, but that we would go out and engage the world with the only hope that there is. We know your word tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. No other religion leads to heaven other than Christ, other than the gospel, other than uh, Christianity that teaches salvation by faith. So Lord, I pray that you would help us count our days, see every one of them as a privilege that we would wake up and that we would serve you. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.